And as you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 19 together. Luke chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 11 through 27 today. So listen carefully, because these are God's words to you today, Nolwood. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, as Jesus, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray one more time as we contemplate this passage together. Lord, we thank you for this passage that we have. It's encouraging and it's severe. It's simple, yet it's challenging. I ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say, that we might not only hear, but do what is said in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. What difference does it make to live faithfully like Jesus wants you to. Why should we bother 
to do what Jesus says. After all, salvation is by grace through faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't get to heaven by doing good things. We don't earn our way past the pearly gates. And that's very true. So why is it that there are so many commands to live faithfully? Why does Jesus care so much about how it is that we are to live? Well, this is one of the wonderful things about Jesus. You see, we should just obey Jesus because he is the king. He's the king of the universe. He's created us, formed our bodies out of the dust, filled our lungs with breath, and everything that we have is a gift from him. So by the very nature of it, even if he gave us nothing, we would be in debt to him constantly and should just do things because we're supposed to, because he's the king. But Jesus has taken it a step further, of course, because he's not just a king. He's also a savior. He was our servant who condescended to be like one of us, taking on a human nature, human flesh, living like one of us for three decades before going to the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins and have granted us a place in his kingdom. That would be a reason enough to serve him, even more so than him being the king of the universe, but also our savior, who's not only made our bodies, but has saved our souls and has brought us into union with him. But Jesus takes it even one step further still in that when he has invited us to be a part of this kingdom, invited us to build something bigger than ourselves, something that's going to last for all of eternity, he also promises to give reward to those who serve him in addition already to heaven. This is a marvelously generous king that we're serving here. And that's what we see out of this passage today. But what are those rewards that we're going to have? What is it that this passage teaches us? Well, we're going to look at our two points today. You'll find those in your outline tucked into the bulletin. It says our two points is King Jesus has work for us today. King Jesus has work for us today. And then number two, that King Jesus will call all to account for their work. King Jesus is going to call all to account for our work. So let's begin as we say in verse 11. Now, it's worth noting that when we begin here, it says, as they heard these things, we don't want to just take this passage in isolation. What are these things he's talking about? Well, this is what we covered last week when we looked at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, if you remember, who was our tax collector who had made his money, made his living off of corruption, skimming off money, charging people extra, bilking people out of their money to give more money for himself. He's now been transformed by Jesus. Jesus has called him down, invited him to be in the kingdom. He has come to Jesus, surrendered his life, and has dispersed all of what he has taken to the poor and to those that he's cheated. Now, having heard all of that, an exercise in faithful living, we get these words that Jesus is telling this parable. Now, why is Jesus telling this parable? Well, Luke is very helpful because he tells us why. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. He's in Jericho right now, about a six-hour walk from Jerusalem. 
And as they're drawing closer to Jerusalem, people are beginning to get ideas in their head. Oh, this is Jesus. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. He's going to set up the earthly kingdom. The day is finally here. Zechariah 14, the mountains are going to split apart. There's going to be water going from sea to shining sea. Israel's going to be great again, and we're going to rule the world. But Jesus needs to correct that. They're expecting a physical kingdom that comes on horses and swords. But Jesus doesn't win this kingdom, this kingdom that's not of this world with swords in his hands. Instead, he's going to win it through nails through his hands as he's on the cross. This kingdom that Jesus is going to set up here at this point in redemptive history is a kingdom not of this world, as he'll tell Pilate in just a few days from this point in the narrative. Yes, Jesus will set up a physical kingdom. Yes, what we read in Zechariah 14 will come to pass. But that day is not here yet. So he's going to correct them. And is telling them that there's going to be a little bit of time between now and then. So he begins in verse 12. A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This is something that the people at that time would have been familiar with. When a local ruler's father died and it was his turn to go to the throne, he would have to go back to Rome, get permission from the emperor to be this new ruler and to earn the title of king or tetrarch or whatever the title was at the time. And if you were someone that people didn't like when your poll numbers were bad, you could, the city could send a commission of people to follow you to the emperor of Rome and try to make a case for why you shouldn't be the king or the ruler of their area. So this is something that these people would have been familiar with. And Jesus here, it's pretty obvious, is to be the nobleman. He's going to go and is going to receive a kingdom. But it notes that he's going to be going to a faraway land. It's going to be some time before this nobleman returns, and it's going to be some time before Jesus returns as well. It's been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. It's a time, it's been a long time, but this is something that Jesus has anticipated and warns us about here in this passage. Then he goes on and tells about, he calls up ten servants, Gives them each 10 minas and tells them, engage in business until I come. A mina would have been worth about three months' salary for an average worker. So it's, it's, a, it's a small amount of money for someone who can do this 10 times over and go and receive a kingdom. But he's giving this to these 10 servants. Now you may notice this is very similar to another parable. Parable of the talents, which we're probably more familiar with. We see in Matthew 25. I think, along with other commentators, that Jesus has told this parable twice, and he makes different points on this. Here, when Jesus is telling this one, he is outside of Jerusalem, and is telling this to a wider crowd. With the parable of the talents, he is already passed into Jerusalem, and he's telling this to the disciples. The amounts of money are very different. The amount of servants is very different. There's 10 servants here in Luke. There's only three servants in Matthew. Matthew's servants are given 20 years' worth of salary to deal with, and these guys are given three months' worth of salary. But the main thing is is that we're making different points with these parables. This is actually summed up rather well with um, uh, Leon Morris, who put it this way. The Matthew parable 
reminds us that we all have different gifts because the different, the, the different servants were given different amounts of money. Whereas the um, Luke parable shows that we've all been given one basic task, that of living out our faith. So here in Luke, everyone is given the same amount of money. The same task has been given to all of these servants. And the goal that we're going to be looking at, and the thing that Jesus wants us to see out of this passage, is being faithful with this one thing that we've all been given, which is the gospel. Just living faithfully to what Jesus has told us to do, to spread this gospel far and wide. So how do we apply this? What are we supposed to do? It's pretty obvious Jesus is the nobleman, and it's pretty obvious that we're supposed to be the servants. One commentator pointed out it's nice that Jesus has given this to 10 servants, not 12. So it's not like Jesus is only talking about the disciples here. He's talking to us all. We've all been given something. What are we supposed to do with it? How do we go on spreading the gospel, seeking and saving the lost? Well, I quote at length from one of my favorite comment, uh, commentators, Philip Ryken, because he really nails this. So listen carefully. He says, here are some of the ways that we can put the gospel to work. We do it by growing in our own Christian lives through repentance, prayer, and daily dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We do it by trusting God to meet our needs and guide our decisions. We also put the gospel to work by serving people in need, showing the love and mercy of Christ to people who are lonely, sick, homeless, grieving, and afraid. Then we put the gospel to work by loving our families with the love of Jesus and sharing our faith with our friends. We put the gospel to work by making a personal investment in missionary work, praying, giving, sending, and going to the nations with the good news about Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we put the gospel to work by carrying out our regular calling in a way that shows the supremacy of Christ. The worker can do this with his labor, the professor with his scholarship, the educator with her teaching, the lawyer with his justice, the doctor with his medicine, and the artist with her craft. As long as it's done with the intention of bringing glory to God, anything and everything we do is an investment in the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming soon. Get busy for him with the gospel. Riken's exactly right here. To sum it all up in one phrase, this is a radical reorienting of our lives. Everything that we do is done for the purpose of spreading the gospel and growing in it. If you have your kids in T-ball, it's not just so that they can learn teamwork and dedication to something. It's so that you are with dozens of other parents who are there watching the same child swing hilariously and fall down. And puts you in contact with these other people that you would otherwise not have any contact with. And have the opportunity to listen to their hearts and see how the gospel applies to their situation. Or the gifts that you've been given and the job that you have, whether that's an electrician or a plumber or a professor. God doesn't have you in that profession by accident. That he has you interacting with the people that you interact with because he has something for you to give them. He has a gospel for you to bring to these people, to a lost and to a dying world. And it's very easy for us to lose that focus, isn't it? It's very easy to forget that that's why we do things. 
Because life very easily becomes just about getting the laundry done, making dinner, vacuuming the floor, and getting your tax check put in correctly. And life can feel very mundane, and we can be distracted by the mundaneness of it all and think it has no point. Think that it has no purpose. So we need to daily reorient ourselves because everything is out there to try to distract us away from that. To reorient us and say, okay, this is for the gospel. This is for the kingdom. This is for Jesus, even the laundry. It fills everything with that purpose. And if we don't constantly think that way because we don't naturally do that, we have to keep bringing that back. It's like plowing a field. If you're going to plow something and you want to go in a straight line, it's actually really hard to go in a straight line if you don't have something else to focus on to guide you in that. Either a tree or a post or something to keep you in line. Because if you're looking back and looking around, your plow is going to go all over the place. Or mowing your lawn, same thing. Or if you're navigating in a forest in dense woods without a compass. It's really easy to think you're continuing to go in a straight line, but that tree 20 yards back from you gave you just a slight turn. Now you're headed somewhere else. If you're going to navigate a dense forest correctly, everything has to be very calculated. When you come up to a tree, you need to make four 90-degree turns to make sure that you're continuing on in that straight direction. That's our lives. This is not meant to make your life a panic for trying to figure out how you can make everything about the gospel. But it gives a purpose to it. That your life is not just laundry. Your life is not just surviving to the next weekend. But it is living for a kingdom that Jesus promises to reward. And that Jesus will call us one day to account for. And that's what we're going to look at As we take a look in this second point, that King Jesus will call all to account for our work. What happens when we stay on course? What happens when we stay on mission and on message? Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. It's also worth noting, as we remember from verse 14, there is a contingent of people that really don't like this king. So these servants have had to do their business in a hostile world. If they're going to be doing business on behalf of the king, everybody knows that. So this is a lot of resistance that these servants have been encountering. But here they report to their new king, and they have, these servants have brought in far more. Here, this first mina, which had been, just put a figure on it, $6,000. This first servant has turned $6,000 into $66,000 when you account for the original mina that he had. He made 10 profit. A thousand percent profit's pretty good. But still, even $66,000 for someone who apparently has 10 cities just to throw around and spare is not a lot of money. Notice even what he says. He says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. This is very little that the king has given. That he gives them now rulership over ten cities. Now, if we're going to apply this to us, because we can see this also play out with the other servant to the same manner. He produces five and he gets five cities. 
What is it then that Jesus is after us? Is it just results? Is Jesus looking for the numbers? Wants the Excel sheet to look good. Get your P&L nice and put in order. Is Jesus after results? And if he is, how do we avoid this just becoming pragmatism? Getting stuff by any means necessary. A lot of people fall into that. What is Jesus after? Well, I think we can look back in verse 17 and find out what he's after. Look what it says. He said to him, well done, a good and faithful servant, because you have been what? Faithful. Not because you have been productive. Not because you have pulled in such a great return. but Because you have been faithful. That's what Jesus is after. It's faithful in little things. Hudson Taylor, pioneer missionary to China, put it this way. A little thing is just a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. Faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. There are a ton of little things in our lives. Family devotions with your kids. Little thing. 15 minutes around the dinner table. It's not much in terms of timing. Not much in terms of preparation. Read a portion of scripture. Explain it to the children and pray. It doesn't take us a lot of time. It's a little thing. But oh, what an impact that makes over faithfulness, doesn't it? When it's 15 minutes spread out over every day of 18 years, what an impact that has. Little investments, watering of the seed, can do great things. But it's easy to skip, isn't it? It's a little thing. Couldn't get to it. 15 minutes, big deal. But it's the faithfulness in the little things that prepares us for greater service. Or about prayer. Prayer is something, as Kent Hughes said, that we all can make great investments in, but few of us do. A few minutes a day. Even while we're doing other things. While we're driving. Just don't close your eyes. But you can pray. But how often we skip in those little things. Faithfulness with what we have, where we are, and what season of our life we are in is what God is looking for. It's going to be different depending on what season of life you're in, where you are, what you do. Your little things might be different from my little things. But what God has given to us all is the gospel and commands us to be faithful in that. But what happens if you don't see results? What happens when you have been doing those little things faithfully for a long time? You have been doing your family devotions with your kids, but the kids don't come to Christ. As near as you can tell. Or when you have been ministering and talking to your parents, uh, your friends at those kids' t-ball game, and you've been praying and witnessing with them for years, and nothing seems to happen. And you move away, and you don't have any more contact with that person. Does that mean Jesus is dissatisfied with you? No. Look again. What Jesus, what the servants, how they put, how they've made this increase. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
Not I took your mina and made it into 10 or 11. Your mina has done this. This points to, if you'll go ahead and turn there with me, because we're going to reference it a few more times, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse five, Paul is addressing a controversy here in First Corinthians where the church has groups within the church have aligned themselves to certain people and saying, it's like, well, I'm of this camp of Paulus. Well, I'm of this camp of Paul. I'm of this camp of Christ, you know, the really spiritual ones. And here Paul is trying to correct this and saying it's not about the servants. Look where it says, it picks up in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's what we see here in this passage. It's faithfulness to what God has called you to do. And if you're doing God's work in God's way, it will not lack God's blessing. That doesn't always mean the results that you can see. It might be those seeds that you've planted in your children are watered by someone else. Maybe even after you no longer see them. But what we're called to do is be faithful to what he's asked us to do and what he has given to us. He is the one that blesses and grows everything. Those results are not up to you. You can't change people's hearts, not on your own. The gospel does that. So then you're saying, okay, well then why are we all about this work thing? I thought God was doing it all. Well, hang on, we've got more. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 again. Let's go back here. And we're going to be in verse 12. And apparently it would seem to be that our work, that we can do this in good and bad ways. That has an effect on us. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, that's the foundation of Christ, the gospel, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What's God saying here? What's Paul relaying to us? Saying that the work that we do, that we can do it well, or we can do it sloppy. Work that is done to advance ourselves. If I'm up here and preaching the word because I like the sound of my own voice or I like attention or I like being able to tell other people what to do, wood, hay, and stubble. Work that would be burned up. But the person who quietly volunteers, fixes the little things in the church that everyone else would notice when they're broken but no one else notices when they're fixed, 
person who's humbly walking and doing the things that God has called them to do, not out of their own strength, not for themselves. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, are we doing, now is the things that we do, are we entirely pure in our motives at all times? No. But it does call attention to why are we doing what we're doing? God's not just looking for faithfulness where we just say, okay, check the box. Did the thing, got this through, trying to just be a good guy. No. It's saying, Jesus, you have done so much. Your gospel is so precious. Let me work to advance this. And do this, I'll never do it perfectly. But as much as the Lord gives me strength to do, I will do it. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Only God decides which is which, by the way. Look at, continuing in 1 Corinthians, look at verse 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of servants that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human in court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What is he saying here? Gold, silver, and precious stonework is not determined by other people. Just because your work impresses your dad does not mean that it impresses God. Or just because the pastor is impressed. Or anything else. Or even you are impressed. It's God's standard. God's work done in God's way. That's what he's looking for. Again, this is not to earn our way to heaven. If you remember back in verse 15 of Corinthians 3, the guy that put up all the wood, hay, and stubble work, the guy who was trusting in Christ but didn't do his job very well, his work was burned up, but he was still saved. So it's not about working our way to heaven, but it's about finding that reward that we find in heaven. Now, I've been talking about this reward for a very long time. What is it? Well, we see in back going to Luke chapter 19, he makes mention of rulership over many different cities. And Paul hints at to what our work will be like in the eternal kingdom when Christ comes back onto earth and institutes his reign forever. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's a very passing illustration where Paul says that we will be judging angels. What does that mean? I wish I knew. But Paul just hints at it. That there is work for us to do in the eternal kingdom. Where we will be in some position of authority. As we see here in Luke 19. But is it the cities? Is it the authority? Is that the reward? One commentator put it this way and I think he nails it here. It says the splendor of the cities committed to those servants will be far less important than the fact that they are now the viceroys of the Lord and therefore among those closest to him. 
and thus will always have access to him and be able to speak to him and tarry in his presence at all times. For heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, whether this be white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar, but rather in what we shall become, namely the companions of our king. That's the reward, closeness to the king and being able to serve him in greater ways than we could here. We've been given a small thing. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Whether that be the T-ball field or India. Take the gospel. That's it. And whatever we will be doing in the eternal kingdom is opportunity for even greater service. We've got to be faithful in the little things. Faithfulness in the little things. Those things that we really easily forgot. That's what's going to determine what we have and what we are able to do in this new kingdom that's coming. But what if we don't? What happens when we don't? We'll look here in this last servant and we'll go quickly. This third one comes up. He says, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. This is verse 21 I'm on now. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Does this guy know the king? This doesn't sound like he's talking about the same person that rewarded somebody who made him $66,000 and rewards him with 10 cities. That's way out of proportion with what he's done. And done this with the other one that committed five. He has five cities. This does not sound like someone who was reaping where he did not sow. This sounds like someone who is rewarding very lavishly for very small service. This servant doesn't know the king. Either he doesn't know him or he's lying. And when he says, I've taken your mina and hidden it in a handkerchief, that was the least secure way to keep money. Consider the bare standard was to at least bury it. Because if you at least did that, if it was stolen, it wasn't your fault. But if you just wrapped it up in a handkerchief and stuck it somewhere and someone stole it, you were responsible to pay that thing back. He didn't do the least amount in order to preserve this. So the king condemns him with his own words. It's like, okay, you think I'm severe? Think I'm harsh? There should have been even more reason for you to do what you were supposed to do. If you thought I was going to be severe to you, then you would have at least put it in the bank. Could have gotten some interest at the very least. If you were just afraid of losing my money, you could have at least done it that way, but you didn't seem to even make sure it was going to be safe. Didn't care. He calls him a wicked servant. So who is this servant? Is he supposed to be the one who's supposed to typify the Christian that sort of knows Jesus, but doesn't do the work he's supposed to. There's a lot of controversy about this, but I think James 2.20, that says faith without works is dead, speaks to this. If we say, I know Jesus, but it's made no impact on your life, then perhaps you don't know Jesus. Because faith that is alive is a faith that works. Again, this is not a do good things and God will, impre- God will be impressed and will give you heaven. No, 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 no. 
But when God has changed your heart, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside your chest, that's going to create something different. And if it doesn't, we have to ask some questions about ourselves and ask whether or not we know Christ. So I think this servant is lumped in with the people that we find in verse 27. Here, what this person had was taken away because it wasn't really his to begin with. It was the master's. And in the same way, we who sit in pews week after week and say, it's just like, yes, I know of the gospel, but it makes no impact on my life. Even what little bit that you have will be taken away and given to those who will do more with. It'd be a better investment. So let's talk about verse 27. Because this sounds harsh, doesn't it? But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Does that sound like Jesus? Yes. If the first part is true, that the king is the one who's doling out the rewards to the faithful servants, then this has to be true too. Also, make sure that when you're taking your portrait of Jesus that you see every page that Jesus has described. Because if we were to look at Revelation, for example, Revelation chapter 14 to start us off. Revelation 14, starting in verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. His enemies brought forth and slaughtered before him. Or in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we get the picture uncomfortable, isn't it? The room gets very quiet when we read passages like that. And it should. It's not a pleasant thing to talk about. Judgment Day is not. As pastor and scholar Dale Ralph David said, it is simply impossible to describe final judgment pleasantly and attractively. If, not if, When final judgment comes, it's coming for each and every one of us. If you are not in Christ, 
There is no silver lining to that. There is no positive spin that you can put on final judgment. It's death for eternity. Not annihilation, a bolt of lightning, and you're gone. No, this is eternal conscious torment forever. Why? Because you've committed sin against the king of the universe. A king of the universe who has also come to earth to take that slaughtering for you. Christ stood in your place and was slaughtered. He took on the record as if he was an enemy and took that death for you. So if you will not submit to him, then you will have to die that death on your own. If you will not surrender to the king, then you will have to pay for that rebellion with eternal punishment. So what's our takeaway? Jesus is a king who has work for his servants to do that he will call us to account for. That work is accomplished when we live all of our life for the glory of God. And we can only do that work when we are empowered by the gospel. When we are trusting in him. We don't do this in our own strength. But instead, we look to Christ and we cry out, we are weak, but you are strong. Give us the strength to do as we are commanded. And then look to the glorious future where Christ will reward you beyond all your deserving. But if you are not in Christ, to ignore this offer to serve him forever, to refuse to repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, then that's to sign your own death warrant. It's a sad note to end on, but that's the note that Jesus ends on. This is our passage today. And I pray that as we turn to look to the Lord's Supper, which we will take in just a moment, this will remind us of the sacrifice that Christ took, the slaughtering that he took on our behalf, and is also the table that he invites us to, that we can share fellowship with our gracious King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have had together. Lord, these are hard passages that we have in our mind. Unpleasant things to think about. But you have been gracious to to warn us. And you have been gracious to give us a way out. That that does not have to be where we stand. But that we can instead come to you have all of the sins which we deserve to be slaughtered for and have them forgiven so that we could spend all of eternity with you in great reward. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.